Volume 2, Chapter 8 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 8 Then she plots, then she ruminates, then she devises, and what they think in their hearts they may affect. They will break their hearts, but they will effect. Merry Wives of Windsor From the Same to the Same February 20th Twice I have taken up my pen to write to you, dearest, and twice I have laid it aside and have been summoned away by household duties. I am no longer a lady of leisure, seeking amusement only in occupation. My time is no more my own. My hours are portioned out, and my minutes are of value. The change will bring added care, but increased happiness. For to extend my sphere of use must be to extend my sphere of enjoyment. How I wish that you could spend even one hour with me, and bestow a few approving glances in reviewing my little menage. To become acquainted with every nook and corner of our city cottage and bandbox dwelling would not consume much of your invaluable time. But I am running on without remembering that I have not communicated the events of the last month except in thought, and that this ideal and unsubstantial correspondence is, in our present corporeal state of existence, a rather uncertain mode of transmitting intelligence. I will endeavour to be more explicit. You have not forgotten the scheme which Ellen and I, having once decided upon, soon determined to carry into execution? A history of the difficulties which we encountered might be as tedious to you as they were annoying to us. Therefore, we will pass them over. Behold us, then, in our new home, with which, if you will place your hand in mine and follow me, I will make you thoroughly acquainted. I will guide you along as the mesmerizers lead their clairvoyance in spirit until we reach the haven of our wishes. We are standing beside Union Park, gazing with a crowd of idlers upon the beautiful fountain in its center, which shoots up a snowy column of sparkling foam high above the surrounding trees. How that fountain freshens the air, and were it springtime, you could not pause here without inhaling the breath of flowers. Many a summer afternoon I have lingered beside this huge gate to watch the crowd of gambling children who long to snatch one forbidden flower from the blooming beds, or to enjoy one bound across the velvet lawn which their tiny feet were not permitted to press. But the snow lies thickly upon the flower beds, lawn, and graveled walks, and the park looks cold and deserted but not so cheerless, not so deserted, as that splendid mansion on the right. Every window is shut, every blind and shutter tightly closed, and the house has a funereal air which makes my heart sad. The spring approaches, and the flowers of the park will bloom again. 
but when shall the hearts that withered in that stately mansion know a second spring we will not linger i never dare to pause for a moment when i pass by that once happy dwelling for it was the home of evelyn follow with me the railroad track until we reach twenty-seventh street we pass by many handsome and some picturesque-looking buildings just erected, and others in progress. By the way, that railroad, or rather the cars which travel upon it, are an inestimable convenience. We uptown Democrats have a coach and two, or a coach and four, at our service at all hours, and may travel some three miles for twice as many cents. I believe New York is the only city of the Union where railroad cars and omnibuses are patronized by the wealthiest and most exclusive classes, as well as by the less affluent. We have now reached 27th Street. Do you see the neat row of miniature cottages with their narrow, quaint green porches and Lilliputian courtyards? One of them I now call home, and it is a home of harmony and peace to more than myself. Enter with me at the gate. You see, we are favored with a very few rods of ground within this courtyard. But, small as is the space for cultivation, Ellen and I have determined that when the sweet springtime comes, a variegated honeysuckle vine shall clamber along our trellised porch. A bed of mignonette and sweet alsum shall bloom around the honeysuckle's roots. Enter, for the door swings back as lightly as if it said welcome. We pass along the contracted entry. But, unfortunately, its dimensions will not permit us to display much grace of motion should we attempt to walk side by side. This is our parlor, sitting and dining room. It needed but a few yards of carpeting to cover this floor, and the pattern is neat, is it not? Pray admire our ingenuity in the invention and construction of the principal article of furniture. That Ottoman stofa was made by Ellen and myself. That is to say, the rough wooden framework formed of a few boards joined lengthwise together, was fabricated by an ordinary carpenter. But Ellen and I stuffed the sofa with hair and moss, covered it with this pretty blue and white chintz, and made these three square pillows, which very comfortably protect the shoulders from the wall. Our oriental couch was, as you may suppose, not very expensive. The flower vases, which you observe on that mantel, were presents from Amy. The small round table between the windows, which holds a few choice books, was my purchase. It is hardly large enough for us to invite a friend to dinner, but we are but four, and as Ellen says, we feel more neighbourly for sitting close together. 
These folding doors open into an apartment of the same dimensions as the parlor, and the desk and benches and slates and pile of books wooden clock on the mantel have already told you that it was the schoolroom. Here is my seat on the right of the fireplace, and there is Ellen's on the left. Everything is ready and in order. Desk, books, benches, all, all, but the pupils. They, alas, have not yet appeared. We have been promised several scholars, but some are finishing their quarter at other schools, some are ill, and the parents of several think that the weather is yet too cold for their children to venture out early in the morning. We can only wait with patience. These windows open upon a dwarf piazza, and beyond you may see an apology for a garden. But I will engage that it shall yield bouquets enough before next fall to supply Ellen's old flower woman all the summer through. And now let us ascend the stairs. Do they not remind you of those erected in a cage for white mice? The front room over the parlor is Mrs. Willard's bedchamber. Has it not quite an air of elegance? This furniture was presented to her by her son-in-law. For my part, I think the room is lumbered up with such a heavy bureau and marble top washstand, etc., etc., and that handsome drawing glass, much too large to be inserted between those windows, reminds me of the Vicar of Wakefield's family picture, which could not be forced through the door. But Mrs. Willard delights in these relics of bygone days, out of place or in place. The chamber over the schoolroom is Ellen's and mine. You will quickly recognize the blue sofa bedstead and armchair that stood so long in my bedroom boudoir at Fleece's. And there is a little rosewood secretary which I long since gave to Ellen. The rest of the furniture has been transported here from Ellen's chamber at Miss Merritt's. Blanche and Netta sleep in the attic, and their accommodations are by no means uncomfortable. After you have paid a visit to the kitchen, you will be familiar with the location of every room in the house, and may transport yourself hither in thought when you please, and without further assistance from me. Mrs. Willard's depression of spirits increases, and is accompanied by a total inactivity both of mind and body. She takes no interest in our household arrangements, and never gives us the benefit of her advice. Ellen and I, by turns, prepare and cook the simple meals of the family, and we have a say to instruct Blanche in the culinary art, but Blanche was never designed for a cook. The poor creature faithfully and mechanically follows our directions, but she seems to be deprived of the power of thinking herself, and is a most inefficient assistant. Netta, who has grown so plump and pretty that she is hardly recognizable, is a maid of all work, 
and as swift when she runs on errands as though she were descendant of the celebrated Lightfoot. She is so strongly attached to Ellen and so delighted at the prospect of remaining with her that affection quickens her intellect and she learns her duty with astonishing rapidity. Netta's mother was at first half unwilling to part with the child. She seemed to think that she could retain Netta herself and that Ellen would still instruct and clothe her. Too sudden prosperity had made this woman ungrateful, and I began to discover something sinister and hypocritical in the expression of her countenance. As soon as she was aware that she had but little more to expect from her benefactress, and that Ellen was no longer able even to provide for Netta unless the child was placed under her own care, the wily creature made a virtue of necessity, and in a whining tone said that since the young lady looked upon it as a favor, she might take the child and welcome. Mr. Willard is quite charmed with the new abode, and pays me the compliment to say that my presence enlivens the house. He intends, at least so he says, to make himself very useful in keeping our accounts and collecting our debts, and even talks of teaching some of the little ones French himself, for in his youth he was an excellent French scholar." You will probably be anxious to hear something of my departure from Fleecer's, but I have nothing very particular to relate. Mr. Elton casually learned my projected removal, but his only opportunity of speaking upon the subject was at table. He made one more fruitless attempt to obtain an interview with me, but I pertinaciously and undisguisedly shunned him. Let us change the subject. The coward flies from what he fears, and there is sometimes wisdom in following a coward's example. One word of Amy. The gentle bride that is to be. Colonel Damoreau has selected the first of May for their nuptial day, but that day was fraught with too many ominous recollections for Amy to look forward to it with pleasure. The colonel then entreated for an earlier period, but Amy's parents refused to yield up before June. The 3rd of June has now been chosen for the bridal day. The month of roses will indeed be a roseate one for Amy. 23rd. Wish us joy of our first pupils. Ellen and I have congratulated each other and nodded our heads approvingly one to the other full twenty times today, for now we may style ourselves superintendents of a school in good earnest. This morning at nine o'clock, two little girls residing in the neighborhood were brought to us by their father, and their education in all useful and ornamental branches very solemnly consigned to our tender care. The father, Mr. Topham, is a rough, good-hearted individual who has risen by slow degrees from a very low station and amassed considerable wealth by hard labor. Illiterate himself, he desired that his young ladies should receive the advantages of an ornamental education, as he termed it. 
"'And, missus,' said he, turning to me, "'I calculate you'll teach em manners in particular, "'for I don't care the value of that,' snapping his fingers, "'what their edications cost, "'so as they knows as much as other people's folks. "'I promise that the young ladies "'should receive all due polish at our hands.' "'And the father scraped his foot and bobbed his head "'and departed well pleased with my assurances. "'We conducted the two half-terrified little girls "'into the schoolroom, "'untied their tiny quilted bonnets, "'and hung them on the pegs about the room, "'unwound their warm woolen mufflers from their throats, "'and laid aside their short cloaks, mitts, and india-rubber shoes. "'As we performed these tender offices, "'I experienced a delightful sensation, "'which told me that I should derive much pleasure "'in cultivating the underdeveloped minds of these dear children "'and moulding and instructing their young hearts.' The elder child, who carried on her arm a little round basket containing their luncheon, was not more than eight years of age, and the other was two years younger. When the little basket was placed in a corner, the cloaks and hats hung up, and the very unnecessary ceremony of marking the pegs with the names of the children performed, I took my seat at my desk and ellen followed my example and placed herself at hers the large blank book before me was then opened and i rather pompously inserted the children's name susan tompum ann topham what was next to be done i looked at ellen and she looked inquiringly at me and the children looked at the empty benches and the vacant desk and then looked at us, and the younger one smiled so sweetly that I could not refrain from kissing her rosy lips. I wondered whether the thought flitted through their little heads, which entered mine, that there were as many teachers as scholars making a superfluity of the former. I was really at a loss in what way to commence, when Ellen opened her desk and, taking out a small Bible, laid it before me and said, "'Will you read a chapter, Miss Catherine?' "'I wish you could hear Ellen's musical voice. It grows sweeter every day.' She then placed the little girls upon one of the long benches and sat herself between them, taking the hand of either child. I opened the holy book she had presented me, and read the first chapter of Matthew. We then knelt, and Ellen mingled her voice with mine, and re we repeated the Lord's Prayer. When we rose from our knees, I felt inspired with an earnest desire to be of real service to those two young children. I already loved them, and I inwardly thanked heaven for my pleasurable emotions. Ellen and I had long since settled upon our mode of tuition, and resolved to make the school hours of our pupils the most pleasant instead of the most tedious of the day. It was so easy, we thought, to combine amusement and instruction. We looked over Combs' Physiology and Johnson's Economy of Health, and many similar works, and it determined to correct all errors and abuses prevalent in schools. 
we had become quite quixotic in our intentions and were ready to attack windmills as well as actual giants and schoolroom monstrosities. All our benches were made with backs that no contracted shoulders and crooked spines might be occasioned by seats without support. At certain hours of the day, it was decided that the children should march around the room two by two and keeping step one with the other. This promenading would not only give them exercise, but would contribute in imparting that easy and graceful gait in which Americans are particularly deficient. The children were to be indulged with an hour's recess from twelve o'clock to one, and we had provided ourselves with skipping ropes, balls, graces, and calisthenic sticks for their amusement. The school closed at three. It was a suggestion of Ellen's that part of the instruction should be oral, and we had provided ourselves at some expense with several large volumes descriptive of the vegetable and animal kingdom, and illustrated by colored plates. At a certain hour of the day, one or more of these plates, representing birds, beasts, insects, or trees, herbs, or flowers, was displayed to the children's delighted eyes, and an interesting sketch of history of the animal, etc., or the growth of the tree or flower given them. On one day the book was to be placed in Ellen's hands, and on the next in mine. In good sooth, I think we shall derive quite as much pleasure from the proceeding as the children. If we could only carry out all our plans, we should quite revolutionize the usual and long-established habits and regulation of modern schools, habits and regulations which are so apt to render school a prison, an instruction a wearisome task. We shall soon look upon ourselves as the reformers and benefactors of the age and grow proud of our position and authority. I shall not give you a detailed account of the manner in which Ellen and I won the affections of little Susan and Annie, nor tell you how we passed the first day in our new capacity of teachers. It is enough to say that the children did not appear to be fatigued, nor were we wearied, and that when I hooked little Annie's cloak and tied on her bonnet at three o'clock, she, of her own accord, put up her cherry lips to press mine. I will only add that I have strong suspicions that Ellen followed my example as she arrayed little Susan and affectionately saluted her pupil at parting. At half-past three we dined, and in the afternoon we received a visit from a formal-looking, precise old lady, dressed in deep mourning, and accompanied by an awkward little girl, about ten years of age. The lady informed us, in round phrase but somewhat sharp accents, that she had come to inquire about our school. She said that she desired to place her granddaughter under the care of respectable persons for a few years, but that she should send her to Madame Chagrais to finish off. She added that she was very particular in regard to her granddaughter's morals.
thoughts that she wished no outlandish notions to be put into her head and that she considered her religious education an entirely different department from that which we were to superintend and that it must not be interfered with. I ventured to suggest that the instruction which a child daily received unavoidably formed part of its religious education, although the word religion might never be used. She assured me that I was totally in error, that she found me, as she had anticipated, quite in the dark on some subjects, and that should the child be placed under my charge, she must positively insist that I would teach her no catechism and put no new-fangled, outlandish notions into her head. In spite of her dictatorial air and assumption of superiority, I promised very quietly to comply with her wishes as far as I understood them. She then directed the child to rise and speak to her new teachers. The little girl thrust out her lips and twisted her fingers without obeying. Ellen approached her and gently took her hand, but she snatched it away and rudely cried out, Go along! The grandmother, instead of rebuking her for this conduct, laughed and said that the dear child was strange and must be coaxed, and that she was, for all the world, just like her poor dear mother. Very soon after this she took her leave, promising to send the child to school the next morning, and again repeating that she desired that we put no queer ideas into her granddaughter's head, for on this point she was very positive. Ellen looked quite dismayed at the lady's stately demeanour and the condescending manner in which she addressed us, but I was engrossed by thoughts of the untractable twig which we were doomed to bend. 24th. A present from Amy, the thoughtful Amy. She has just sent me a couple of medals, a gold one representing the sun and a silver one shaped in a half moon, the first to be worn by the most amiable and industrious child and the other by the best scholar. The medals were accompanied by a prize work box, which at the end of the quarter was to be awarded to the most uniformly deserving pupil. Ellen is so delighted with these gifts that I can hardly prevent her from putting on her hat to seek Amy and thank her at once. Our school hours were not today characterized by so much harmony and pleasantness as yesterday. Miss Alexina Serafina Smith, our new pupil, was even more perverse and ill-bred than we had at first supposed. Ellen gave her a seat beside little Susan, whom Miss Alexina amused herself by pinching and troubling with her feet, at the same time informing the little girl that her grandmamma wouldn't let her keep company with everybody's children. She curled the leaves of the book which I placed in her hands, drew figures on her slate instead of writing, giggled in my face when I was talking to her, and paid not the slightest attention to my request. Ellen begins to fear that keeping school may not prove as delightful an occupation as it at first seemed, but I will not permit myself to come to the same conclusion. 
This morning, I made a calculation of our necessary domestic expenses and found that, with the strictest economy, the quarterly payments of twenty-four scholars would hardly maintain us. Twenty-four scholars, and we have but three. Well, well, there is no use of troubling ourselves in anticipation. Our welfare is in the hands of divine providence, and though we are bound to make every exertion in our power, I still believe that some phoenix good ever springs from the ashes of disappointment. Evening. I cannot sleep without communicating to you some joyful intelligence, for which I have just offered up my thanks to heaven. Mr. Willard has today obtained the office of bookkeeper in a new mercantile establishment, which is rapidly rising in importance. He was so much overjoyed by his good fortune that, on relating it to us, he wept like a child. I am sorry to add that his wife merely shrugged her shoulders and remarked that a pitiful $600 a year was a most munificent godsend. But I have reserved for the last at once most pleasing and most painful portion of the intelligence. Through whose influence, think you, was this situation obtained for Mr. Willard? Through the unasked aid of Mr. Elton. How I do love that Mr. Elton, said Ellen enthusiastically, and turning to me as she spoke, do not you? Ah, Ellen, little didst thou imagine how deeply those casual words sank into my heart, and how often a whispering voice within me repeated that searching question. Do not you? I had almost answered it when my eyes fell upon Blanche. She was sitting beside the hearth, with her elbows resting upon her knees, and her wan but lovely face leaning upon her hands. That sight chilled the warm blood that glowed about my heart, and Ellen's spirit-echoed question met no reply. End of chapter 8